0: The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And now we get to move forward with our study of the ten paramis, right? Generosity, moral sensitivity, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, resoluteness, loving kindness and equanimity and don't get so tight about this particular way of coming up with 10 qualities because the important thing is to recognize beautiful wholesome qualities to really get it this is a beautiful quality whether you're seeing it in another person in any moment or you're seeing it in yourself in yourselves and you want to be really competent Or fluent in recognizing the beautiful, and you know how it is. We human beings, we tend to initially get good at recognizing the unbeautiful, the unwholesome, right? Like if we picked any one of our good friends, we'd probably be much better at pointing out their faults than now. Not this isn't true for all of you. I'm just mostly speaking to myself. I'd be much better at pointing out the faults of my friends than I would their wholesome qualities I mean I could do it so I wouldn't embarrass myself but my conviction around their faults would be much clearer and stronger than the clarity around their beautiful qualities now why is that well we simply haven't practiced and it really skews our whole existence this let's just call it a lack of interest in what is truly beautiful and the thing the really crazy thing is it's really pleasant to notice what's beautiful. It feels good. And it's healing on all kinds of levels. So I'm really appreciating our deep study of the Ten Paramis in later Buddhist traditions. They're usually referred to as the Paramitas. And they have a different number. I think there's seven in like the Mahayana uh, tradition of Buddhism. But like I said, it's just important. And again, don't feel... Way down by having to somehow master all ten of them, just get interested in whatever you're already interested in, and do the deep dive. Keep that wholesome quality in mind all day long, and you'll start finding the others showing up as you get more intimate, more aware of the one you're naturally interested in. Maybe you're interested in it because you think you don't it doesn't really exist in your kind of character or personality. Or maybe you're interested in it because you already see it as a kind of strength in your personality. doesn't matter why you're interested in it. You might as well start with what you're interested in, because you're interested in it. And the way that these beautiful qualities are developed, as I mentioned in the guided sit, is by keeping them in mind. Just like it works with the Buddha's 16 steps and his comprehensive set of meditation instructions that we went who maybe two-thirds of this morning. We keep joy in mind. It's not easy to keep joy in mind. We want to notice the ache in the back or the restlessness or wondering when the sit is going to be over. But we're being asked, we're being invited through just that short interval of time while we're breathing in. Can I keep joy that's actually present here in the body, heart and mind? Can I keep it in mind? However faint it is. And what effect is is there when I do keep it in mind, then for that duration of the exhalation? So it's not a high bar, you know, how long is an in-breath or an out-breath, five to ten seconds. I think we can do our best in a relaxed way to stay interested in these wholesome, beautiful qualities. And then on to ease, and then on to that spaciousness of dispassion, that ease Allows for us when we have a lot of contentment, we don't feel so pushed around by our mental activity, right? So, there's a lot of dispassion or spaciousness. Oh, so just thoughts, just the worry, just the planning thought. It's just stuff. So, there's a lot of that spaciousness, and we notice the quietness that comes from that non attachment to thought, not identified so much with thought. One of the things that you saw I put in the chat uh, a document, the links there uh, aren't live but if you click on that bottom link you'll get all the live links to what I wanted to share with you including uh, something I think Steve Armstrong wrote but from the Vipassana Metta Foundation which is Steve Steve Armstrong and Kamala Masters organization in, in Maui. And it's it's called the paramis, the ten spiritual practices of letting go. And I think it was Steve, and with maybe Kamala got involved too. But writing how each of the ten paramis is just can be understood as a letting go. Like generosity is a letting go of stinginess, you know, fear of not having enough. And moral sensitivity is this power. To let go of my impulse to do something that might cause harm. Because I have this sensitivity, this valuing of non harming, I can refrain from doing stuff that might hurt myself or hurt others, so I don't do it. Right. So it's a letting go of, of our programming, my programming, my tendencies, right? I can have the tendency to take something, but I can refrain from I can let go of that tendency. And all the way through, so you could take a look how each one. I mean, it's really the essence of the path: this letting go. And we don't like that. I, I was. Uh, I looked at uh, article that Pema Chodron wrote, and she made this joke. And she It was an article. I think it's from her book, "The Places That Scare Us." Maybe a chapter on renunciation in that book, and um, she was talking about how in Buddhism you know, often people will get a spiritual name like renunciation, you know, but in the Pali um, or non-attachment. Like I know several Vivekanandas. So Ananda, the end of that word means bliss and Viveka means non-attachment, you know, gets translated in different ways, but that's one way you can translate Viveka. So the bliss of non-attachment. And, uh, but you know it, and Pema children says this in the article we often think of non-attachment as sort of bleak and attachment is exciting you know oh, i'm attached i'm excited by so we have to look at this is why renunciation is almost always taught in the context of the joy of renunciation but initially we don't sense the joy of renunciation It scares us, but it's because we actually haven't pursued that theme, as the Buddha says. We have to notice the burden of our attachment to sense experience, and we need to notice the lightness of non-attachment, the fewness of wants. We have to actually see, like, you know, even today or yesterday, there were probably a lot of moments we were content with what we had. But did we actually notice the absence of the burden of wanting more or wanting something different? It feels good not to need the moment to be different, not, not to need more, and just to start to pick up on that more subtle joy. Of non-attachment of letting go of renunciation and this is a a big part of the Buddhist teachings you know in the Eightfold Path when the Buddha is talking about wise intention intention intentions mental intentions that are aligned with awakening with freedom renunciation is the first of those wise or aligned intentions Followed by kindness and compassion. Right? These are the only intentions we need in our heart. The intention to let go, the intention to care, right? To be kind and to not not cause harm. The intention to not harm or compassion. That makes it really simple to be a human being, right? We only need three intentions. <laughs> And this is something we can actually do. I really, you know, these next two weeks when I talk about renunciation, really take it upon yourself to look already, just in your ordinary life, already we necessarily are practicing letting go all the time, especially if you're a parent. Or, you know, you work with a bunch of people, whether it's nonprofit work or uh, volunteer w- work, rather, or, you know, at your work scene, because when we're in community we always have to adapt and adjust we don't always get our way we're always having to let go all the time oh the weather's not the way i want it to be today well i can either fight against something that i'm going to lose because i don't have any sway over weather yet (laughs) soon i'll be psychic and i'll make it the way i want but until then The wise thing for me when the weather isn't the way I want it to be is to notice how wonderful it is to be able to let go. Yeah, I wanted it to be this way, but it's not, but the heart knows how to let go of that desire. And we're not so much letting go of the desire, we're letting go of this unwise identification with the desire, like I won't be happy unless this happens. So this is a confusing place in Buddhism because I've mentioned this before and a lot of the texts, there's a, a little bit of a sloppiness between what we generally call craving, which is desire with attachment, and desire. Desire arises in the heart and mind naturally. You can't be alive without desire arising in the heart and mind all the time desire itself is not a problem. Misunderstanding the desires that arise in our heart, that's where the problem starts. If I presume when I feel a desire, if I presume there's a me who's gonna be happy if that desire comes to be, and therefore unhappy if it doesn't come to be, then all of a sudden I'm in trouble. There's a somebody who can very easily get betrayed and get an, an is, entangled with sense experience because there is now in my subjective experience there's a personal stake in how things unfold because i'm attached to desire i'm identified with it it feels personal so like sexual attraction right is a big part of being a human being and uh, so sexual attraction will naturally arise when we're human beings you know for each of us in our own particular way unique ways and uh, including not being attracted sexually to other humans right so there's probably an infinite number of ways that sexual attraction uh, moves in our hearts in our bodies and so the Dharma question the spiritual question is when that desire gets activated how do we relate it? Relate to it? How do we understand it? What do we do with it? Do we build a personal story? And then we can notice, oh, when I build a personal story, when there's an, a personal identification and attachment, then I'm in that roller coaster of pain and pleasure. And it's stressful. Even when I'm at the pleasurable end of that spectrum, it's stressful because I don't know how long it's going to last, or I want it to be even better. And on and on. And this is true with everything, every aspect of sense experience, not just in terms of sexual attraction, around food, around power, around possession of objects, around collection of friends and relationships, around our body, everything. This is what the Buddha said whoever is addicted to society and worldly bustle, they will not partake of the happiness of renunciation, dispassion, peace, and enlightenment. And the Buddha talks about this in um, three ways. Like So just in terms of these next few weeks when we're highlighting this beautiful, quality of renunciation, and in particular, the joy, the good feeling of renunciation. And that's um, looking at how the mind is entangled with alluring sights, sounds, sensations, tastes, and smells. Right. So the mind's relationship with, let's call them, external experience. Through the five senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and being alive and being sensitive in these five ways, right? Sometimes we're in the vicinity of pleasure, pleasurable sight, sounds, taste, whatever, and then that's a perfect place to explore the allure. What is it when I, you know, have this pleasant sound? What is gratification? What's the drawback of liking this nice sound? You know, we were playing music yesterday, Win and I, listening to a lot of great oldies from our earlier years in our Pandora Joni Mitchell channel, and uh, and the thing about like when they play one of my favorites, it's like I notice, it's like. I, I, I my mind immediately recognizes how much I like it and that it's going to end and how probably just by statistics the next song won't be as pleasurable <laughs> and it's like right there when I could be just enjoying the song I'm, I'm realizing it's a setup anytime we personally the heart is identified personally feeding off of a nice sense experience On some level, whether we're conscious of it or not, on some level we're suffering because the heart knows it's ephemeral and we can't count on it lasting. And so it undercuts even the pleasurable moments that the attachment does. Not the desire. It's fine to recognize that this is a song I really like, but to imagine, to become, because I imagine it, the person Who's personally feeding on the pleasurableness of that song, right? Then I'm gonna, there will be an equal and opposite. So, in a way, like in the way the world is fundamentally structured, if I personally have a high, I have personally set an emotional low. You don't get a high without a low in this, the nature of the world as it is. That's really what the Buddha is saying. So, Um, we're practicing to not be entangled with both the pleasurable and the unpleasant sense experience. And then the same with the inner world. So any of my thoughts I have about sense experience, right? same thing. Because you know how it is. We can imagine a vacation and how does the mind relate to that imagining? Or imagine... A sexual encounter, or imagine eating food that you like, or imagining things going the way you want them to go at work, or imagining the world becoming a more just place where people are really taken taken care of. And if there's this personal attachment, like if that, then I'll be happy. Then I can relax. Then we're in that roller coaster again, that stressful roller coaster. And there's even a third level. So the first level is just our relationship to actual present moment experience through the senses. The second level of renunciation is like in terms of whatever the thinking mind constructs, you know, ideas, fantasies, imaginings. And then the third is the most subtle level of renunciation, which is uh, learning that there is a dependence on existence itself, you could say. And renouncing, even the the way it's translated, is the substrata of the mind, the heart's addiction to existence, to being somebody who has a life. Now this is not the same as some nihilistic sense of, I don't want to have a life, right? Because that's just its own kind of addiction. To not like I'm done with it. It's really neither being for nor against sense experience, neither for nor against existence. Existence will last as long as it lasts. Totally okay living, showing up, engaging, contributing. But I'm practicing, like with renunciation we practice loosening the identification that you know because this is like we don't even think about this even on a philosophical or intellectual level giving up our attachment to even the most subtle substrata of identification with existence right when's the last time you spent an evening thinking you know what i'm really done with existence but i'm not in a hurry i'm totally fine but when it goes going to look back. (laughs) We don't think that way because we don't even know what that would be, non-existence or neither for nor against existence, the mind not identified with sense experience. But this is the sort of most subtle aspect, but we just start with our ordinary addiction to sense experience And then it's a pretty easy step to notice how we're addicted, attached to our thoughts about our sense experiences. And then that really brings us to this sort of more fundamental or foundational view around our sense experience. This is another passage from the Buddha. Enraptured with lust... Enraged with anger, blinded by delusion Overwhelmed with mind ensnared A person aims at their own ruin At the ruin of others, at the ruin of both And they experience mental pain and grief But if lust, anger and delusion are given up A person aims neither at their own ruin Or at the ruin of others Nor at the ruin of both And they experience no mental pain and grief. Thus Nibbāna, immediate. Oh, thus is Nibbāna, immediate. Visible in this life, inviting, attractive, comprehensible to the wise. And remember the word Nibbāna was an ordinary word uh, at the time of the Buddha used for something like a fire going out. You know, if you had a cooking fire and it goes out, oh, that's the, the where the word nibbana was used, so it has to do with the fires of this identification, this attachment, going out. And this is why renunciation is such a central teaching um, in the Buddhist teachings, because it really points. It's like a different, uh, a different angle on where what is a refuge. And what is uh, trustworthy? Because as a you know an ordinary human being, animal, what we think is trustworthy is having a lot, having a lot of safety, having a lot of food, having a lot of what we want in terms of sense experience. That's the basic definition of happiness and safety. And and then. In through human culture, human life, we've seen the limitations of that pursuit, that ordinary understandable animal pursuit of survival and having enough safety and enough shelter and enough food and enough social connections, etc. And we begin to explore a more trustworthy happiness, this happiness of non-attachment and this is really the taste of freedom, the taste of Nibbāna, this release of the heart, the, the release of the heart's dependence on anything. And it's really important initially that we have a lot of humility around this. I'll just end by sharing a passage from Bhikkhu Bodhi. He's a, an American Buddhist monk. He's been a monk for decades. Really an amazing scholar, did a lot of the translations of the Pali texts, this ancient language that early Buddhism teachings are recorded in, into English. Um, Really quite influential. He's quite old now, but still alive and doing some teaching. And he spent most of his monastic time in Sri Lanka, but he's back in the States now. And he wrote once, Contemplating the dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness inherent in desire, or you could say attachment to desire, is one way to incline the mind to renunciation. Another way is to contemplate directly the benefits flowing from renunciation. To move from desire to renunciation is not, as might be imagined, to move from happiness to grief, from abundance to destitution. It is to pass from gross entangling pleasures to an exalted happiness and peace from a condition of servitude to one of self-mastery. Attachment to desire ultimately breeds fear and sorrow, but renunciation gives fearlessness and joy. It promotes the accomplishment of all three stages of the threefold training. It purifies conduct, that's the moral sensitivity we've talked about. It aids in concentration or the stability of awareness and it nourishes the seeds of wisdom. The entire course of practice from start to finish can in fact be seen as an evolving process of renunciation, culminating in Nibbana or Nirvana, as the ultimate stage of relinquishment, the relinquishment of all foundations of existence. And even intellectually, just to uh, take away, like to imagine being a human being in the lives that each of us are living now with the responsibilities and duties that we have. Like, imagine how light, how free our living could be, our participation, our choosing, our navigating power structures and all that we have to navigate in our lives. Imagine how light and free that could be if the heart... Deep, deep in the heart, there was no dependence on anything. See, then there would be complete fearlessness in my participation, how I connect with my wife. I wouldn't be neurotically manipulating things to sort of feed or take care of this hungry beast or lonely beast or whatever, because the development of the insight has removed the need, all the sort of tendency to be dependent or in need. We're not, our happiness isn't a function of sense experience, so then our relationship to sense experience and the sense world, this world we live in, this world of relationships, it becomes one of love and generosity, not one of me manipulating things to get what I need.